Okay, we're going to start here on the Mishnah on the bottom of Yud Bet. The Mishnah begins, One may not roast meat, onions, eggs, unless they are roasted while it's still daytime. One may not put bread into the oven with the sunset. And not dough on top of coals. Unless the crust hardens while it's still daytime before the onset of Shabbat. Until the bottom becomes hardened, the Gemara will discuss what that means. You're allowed to place the Pesach into the oven with the onset of Shabbat. Even though normally we wouldn't allow you to do something like that, to start cooking it right into the Shabbat, because we would be afraid of maybe you'll stoke the fire. Here we're going to see in the Gemara that this is an exception to that rule. One can lower the Pesach into the Tanur. And you can light or kindle the fire inside of the chamber of the fire in the Migdash. That was a side chamber where the Kohanim slept at night, where they went to warm up when their feet were cold, because they walked around barefoot inside of the Migdash. And they used to keep a pyre inside of this room. So normally, we're going to see in a second, when you light a pyre, you have to ensure that the majority of the pyre is lit before you leave it and going to the Shabbat. Over here, that's not true in the Mikdash. If you just make sure that it's lit, that's enough. Outside of the Mikdash, the rove has to be lit before one can allow it to go into the Shabbat. With coals, then you only need any amount to be lit because coals light easily. And we're not afraid if you just lit a part of the coals that it won't spread to the remainder of the coals. It won't, the fire will not continue to spread. Now the Gemara is going to go back and say, Vikama, how much does it need to be cooked or roasted going into Shabbat in order to qualify to be okay? It says here, you have to be, basar batzal mi what is that itzolu mi bodyom? So my says, Amr Abulazam Rab, Kidesh Itzolu mi bodyom, Kemachal ben Drusai. As we cook the amount of Machal ben Drusai. Ben Drusai was a famous robber in their time. Because he was on the move all the time, he never had sufficient time to have his food cooked fully. He only cooked his food partially. And he was satisfied with that because that was about the amount of time he had while he was a fugitive and also probably liked his meat a little rawer than other people. But that was considered to be the minimum standard of cook in terms of bishul. Rashi over here says, Ben Jusai's listimaya umavashel bishul shlish. One third cooked is considered to be machal ben Jusai. That's the threshold for which something is considered to be cooked. The Rambam, on the other hand, in Ilchot Shabbat, Pergimel, look at the Zion says that it's Chatzi Bishulo, half cooked. But in order to be considered cooked on Shabbat, both to be over in violation of the Easter of Shabbat, Bishul, you'd have to cook something, according to Rashi, to its one-third point, according to the Rambam, until its half point. And if something's already cooked one-third or one-half, it's already considered to be cooked, and one won't be in violation of cooking on Shabbat, one also would not be prompted to stoke the fire, and therefore we don't worry about it going into Shabbat. If it's cooked that much, you're not going to worry about accelerating the cooking process because that's sufficiently cooked. By the time the nightfall comes, it will continue to cook and be fine for you to eat. And the Gemara says, well, we can show that that's true also, which is, 
Anything that's reached that threshold of cooking or cooked, there's no longer any bishul akum involved with it. It's a restriction from the Gemara in other places of Odazara that non-Jews may not cook on behalf of a Jew. What is considered to be cooking by a non-Jew? Well, to cook before something reaches the threshold of Machal Medusai, it's considered to be cooking. After it's crossed the threshold of Machal Medusai, it's no longer considered cooking. If a non-Jew cooks the food for you at that point in time, it's not a restrict, not under that restriction of Bishulei Akum. Tanya, Hanani Omer, Koshuka Machal Medusai, Mutar Shoto Agav Kira, Avapesha Ein Grufauk Tumah. So anything that is already past the threshold of Machal Medusai, you can leave it on the fire going into Shabbat, leave it on the stovetop going into Shabbat, even though the stove is not grufa uktuma. Again, these are terminology that we're going to get to at Perkakira shortly. But even though the oven is not swept out and does not have ashes put it on the coals, those are the methodologies for leaving something on the fire going into Shabbat to ensure that one can't stoke the coals anymore, either because they're swept out, because there are ashes on them, which would prevent the coals from heating up. It would actually cool them off. So by doing an action that shows that you've no intent of continuing the cooking process into Shabbat or preventing yourself from doing that cooking process into Shabbat, that allows you to leave things on the fire going into Shabbat. But here, you don't need to do that. You can leave it on the regular stove going into Shabbat without any worries because it's already crossed the threshold of Bishul. And we assume that it will cook sufficiently for you to eat that night without you ever having to stoke the fire. Raji over here notes about katum, which is, mifazrim efer milamalo, you spread ashes over the fire to deil hafig chomo, to reduce its heat, shlo yosif hevel b'shabbat, so it will not add additional heat, it will not cook more intense way into the Shabbat. Rashi mentions one thing here, we'll get to it again when we reach Parakat Kira, that put a blech, or a cover over the fire, which is the equivalent of today, our modern day, grufag tumah, that we put a blech over the flame and we maybe cover the knobs, is to do two things. One, according to the Ran, it's to be a heker, to make it clear that we're doing something that's not normal. The cooking process that we're using today is not the cooking process we use any other day. Any other day we'd put the item directly on the fire. Over here we're putting some sort of separation to remind us that this is not the normal way of cooking. Rashi adds another dimension to the blech, which is that it has to be the fig chomo. It actually reduces the heat of the flame, the potency of the flame, by putting a cover on it. So Rashi notes that, that it has to do that as well. It has to reduce the efficacy of the flame in heating the object. And so the blech has to serve that purpose as well. And that's the two purposes that you have for a blech. One is to be a hacker, to prevent one from doing what they normally would do. And number two is, it has to be the hafig chomo, according to Rashi. Here he mentions it, he mentions it more explicitly in the beginning of Parakakira. Right. One may not put the bread into the oven going into Shabbat. And there a day when they cooked bread or baked bread, it was done by filling up the oven and putting it onto the walls of the oven. They took the dough and they filled the oven around the walls with the dough and it baked on the walls. Which side is the underside of the bread? The Tanakhama says, until it hardens, the crust hardens around it. But Lazar comes along and says, no, only until the bottom hardens. Which side is considered to be the bottom of the bread? Is the bottom of the bread the Gabi Tanur, part of the bread that's stuck to the wall of the oven? Or is it the side that faces the fire? Is that considered to be the lower side? Tashma, says, 
until the side facing the oven, where it's busted to the oven, until that side hardens, that is not considered to be baked. Until the crust hardens on the part where it's attached to the wall, then it's not considered to be baked. Rashi says, v'chumrahi. That's a chumra because the face or the side that is towards the fire will harden first. But Rabbi Lazar, if we say it this way, is actually making it a higher threshold. Not only the side that faces fire, but even the side that faces the attached to the wall has to harden as well. So Rashi claims it's a chumra. Although Tosafot says he's not clear that whether that's a chumra or not. Rabbi Lazar, based on the Yushalmi, the way Rashi is reading the Chachamim, say, Ejikomopana means the face that's facing the fire. And then Rabbi Lazar is coming to say not only the face that faces the fire, but even the one that's stuck to the wall. So Tosafot, on the other hand, says that he thinks it's a kula. Rabbi Lazar in the Yushalmi sounds like a kula. If that's the case, what he's saying basically is that the side facing the wall will actually harden first. It's more like the side not facing the fire, but facing the wall because of the heat of the wall causes it to harden first. Rabbalazar actually be a kula, because the Chachamim would require Yukamu Pana, which is facing the fire. And Rabbalazar says, no, you don't need the side facing the fire, even the wall side, which would harden first. So Machlok is whether Rabbalazar is really the Chumra or the Kula over here. Shashalim at the Pesach, you can lower the Pesach into the oven, my Taimo. Why are you allowed to do this? Why are you allowed to put something in cooking before Shabbat? It hasn't reached Machal Ben Dusai, why is that okay? Because you have numerous people there that are on guard, on watch. The Chabura is the group of people who came together to join in the Korban of Pesach, eat together for the Korban of Pesach, and they're all involved in the cooking process, they're all there. When you have that numerous type of people, if one person goes to stoke the fire, all the others will say, wait, wait, wait a minute, you can't do that. Since the Chabura are active, engaged in the cooking of the Korban of Pesach, then they will also make sure that none of them violates the Shabbat. We're not talking about an individual who's cooking, making it, cooking here. We're talking about numerous people together, and each one of them will ensure that the other doesn't. Mar says, "Halachilo." It wasn't for the fact that you have this group of individuals together, then it would be impermissible. ben Sharik ben Lo Sharik. You have a goat, whether it's sealed into the oven, whether it's not sealed into the oven, Shapirdami. It's fine. Because we said before in the Gemara that nobody would open up the oven to stoke the fire because the air exposure would ruin the cooking of the Gdi. So nobody would open up the oven, nobody would really get involved with the oven, and you can leave it in there because there is a mitigating factor that would stop you from stoking the fire. So why over here do you need the issue of Nechabura? It could simply be that it's a goat. And being a goat is enough to stop one from stoking the fire. My says, Hotam Mintach, Achalom Mintach. It's a big difference. Normally when you cook a Gdi, a goat, you do it after it's been cut up into pieces. All the different limbs are cut up into pieces, and now you're cooking them, each limb will cook pretty fast, and if you leave it in the oven, it'll be fine. Over here, the requirement for the Koran Pesach is Rosho al Kirbov al Kirav, that has to be done in one shot. It has to be done in its entirety, has to be put on a steak and cooked entirely on the steak. That process of cooking will take longer and is more difficult. So there, there's more reason for someone to go ahead and stoke the fire. It also seems to be that exposure to the air would not be detrimental to it. Because of that, there's more likelihood that someone would stoke the fire here. So unless you have the mitigating factor of B'nei Chabura Zrizimhein, we wouldn't allow you to do this. As opposed to where it's cut up, and there the mitigating factor is that either you don't want air exposure or cooks fast enough because it's in its limbs, then we wouldn't worry about you stoking the fire even if you're an individual. That's the difference between those cases. Machazin et or, we said in the Mishnah that you have to make sure that the fire is kindled 
in the Beit HaMoked, but outside of the Beit HaMoked in the Gvulin, you have to make sure that the fire is caught, taken to at least half or the majority of the pyre. Says that you may not have fire in all of your dwelling places on Shabbat. In your dwelling places, you cannot light the fire. But in the house of Hashem, there you can kindle the fire. Based on the way you're learning the Pasuk, it seems to me there'd be no restriction of lighting a fire on Shabbat in the Mikdash. This is not about lighting before Shabbat, this is talking about on Shabbat itself. So you're saying to us that the only restriction of fire on Shabbat itself is outside the Mikdash, and the Mikdash there'll be no restriction against kindling a fire on Shabbat. That we know is not true. Pasuk is coming to tell you that the fats and limbs of the Korban Ola, Korban Tamid, are allowed to be put on the Mizbeach on Shabbat. So what's the reason by the pyre in the Beit HaMokeh that we allow you to light only a portion of it going into Shabbat? It's because the Kohanim are Zrizim. They're careful. There are lots of Kohanim there. There's the Hirim. They're careful about what they do in the Mikdash. And therefore, even if a portion of it is lit, that's enough, because they're not going to come and try to fan the flames, to bellow the flames, to ensure that they spread throughout the pyre. So what we see from here is that the main issue with lighting of the pyre is that we're afraid that if you only light a portion of it, that somehow the flame will extinguish, or you'll be afraid that the flame will extinguish. And in order to ensure that that doesn't happen, you're going to fan the flames, you're going to stoke the fire, to make sure that it catches over the whole pyre. So therefore we demand by a pyre in the Gvulin, that until the rove, once the majority has caught fire, then you don't have to worry anymore. It's not going to extinguish itself. The remainder will catch fire by itself. We have nothing to worry about anymore. You're just going to leave it. But in the Mikdash, we allow you to just light a portion of it and let it spread because we're not worried about the Kohanim fanning the flames or stoking the fire because there's Rizimim. Again, there are no, numerous of them there to ensure that one doesn't do it. They're also Zihirim. They're very careful. So because of that, we allow them to do it. The last piece of that is that from the Apostle is that you may not burn things that are of personal nature, but things that are for Hashem, like the Evarim Mubtarim, you may burn on the Mizbeach on Shabbat. Tosafot asks the basic question, which Evarim and Pdarim are we speaking about? It seems from Rashi that we're talking about Friday's Korban, that the Korban Tamid from Friday, you're allowed to put the Evarim on the Mizbeach on Friday night. Tosavot says, he doesn't understand that. It says, the Gemara Darshan's other places, Olat Shabbat B'Shabbato. That you're allowed to put the Olat of Shabbat, the Korban Tamid of Shabbat on the Mizbeach, but not Olat Chaul B'Shabbat. Now allowed to put a weekday Korban on the Mizbeach on Shabbat. That doesn't have the dispensation to violate the Shabbat. So how could it be talking about the Ibarim Uptarim of the Korban Olat or Tamid from Friday that are getting put on the Mizbeach on Friday night. He says that can't be what it's speaking about. Ella, it must be that it's talking about the Korban Tamid from Shabbat itself. He says over there we already have the possible dispensations, which is Olat Shabbat B'Shabbato or Bimo'ado. From there we learn Afilu B'Shabbat. That you do it even on Shabbat, you're allowed to bring the Korban. So why do I need a separate Pasuk? So Tosot says because the Ibarim Ubdarim are allowed to be put on the Mizbeach at night. So I would have thought that maybe the Korban Tamid, the Dam, and whatever needs to go on the Mizbeach on Shabbat, that violates Shabbat. What can be left over until Motzei Shabbat and put on the Mizbeach just fine on Motzei Shabbat, maybe we should have to leave it over. This puzzle comes to tell you that you do not have to do that. 
Even on Shabbat, you can put on the Ibarim Ubdarim. Even though they'd be equally fine being put on a Motzei Shabbat, if you want to put them on Shabbat, you can, because they're part of the Ulat Shabbat, and that comes from this puzzle of Lot Varuesh, that's only but in the Mikdash, if you're allowed to bring the Korban, you're allowed to put any part of the Korban on the Mizbech that day, without, even though you could have put it on later on Motzei Shabbat. Right? My Ruban, what does it mean to be Rov? Samarav, Rov Kol Echad Ve'echad. Means that each one of the logs that's there, that has to reach a rove. Shmolamar, Kedei Shelo Yomru, Haveitzim Ve'nechniach Tehtehem. It's reached a point where you're no longer asking for kindling to ensure that the fire catches. Tanya Rav Chia, the Siyuriyei Lishmuel. Rav Chia brought a brighter that supported the position of Shmuel, Kedei. That the flame has to be able to hold on its own. But not that the flame is being encouraged or helped by a different item. So for instance, when you come to light candles, in this case, you're holding a match in your hands. You have to ensure that the flame has caught fully onto the wick and not simply that the, together with the match, and the wick together, there's a flame there. You have to make sure that the flame itself caught well and is taken to the wick. So the same thing here. You have to ensure that the kindling already has taken and you do not need to bring anything else to ensure that the fire will spread or, stay, or catch. It says, What happens if you have a single log? In a single log, how much has to catch? Ravamar rov ovyo has to be the rov of the diameter. And others say that Rav meant the robe of the circumference. When we put a log, a rounded log, does it mean that the robe of the circumference is now caught fire? The internal part doesn't matter to us at all. As long as the external piece, the robe of the circumference has caught fire, that's enough. Or do we say robe of yo, that we worry about the internal part of the log? And therefore, in order for it to be considered to have caught fire, we need it to actually have gone through a robe, the majority of the diameter of the log. Amar Papa. This is Rapapa, who we see many times in Shas, does this. Hilkach, being in robe of yo, or being in robe hekefo. Therefore, we do both. Yes, we both. The majority of the diameter, as well as the majority of the circumference, in order to qualify over here. Again, Rapapa, in many places in Shas, we saw it a number of times in Brachot already, when there are conflicting opinions that he will be the reconciler between those opinions and say, we'll do both. In many instances in Shas, when we did it in Brachot, I put out that time a list of all the places in Shas that Rapapa does it. So you can go back to the beginning of Brachot and see the Shittat Rapapa to see that he does this many places in Shas. Kitznai, this is similar to a Machloket Tanaim that we have. How much does it have to catch fire? It's be the point where the wood is no longer usable for a carpenter. It's burnt so much that it's no longer usable for a carpenter, which would in- indicate that it's through the rove of the diameter, because then the internal part is caught fire, and it's no longer good for use by a carpenter. Fire has to catch on both sides. On both sides, seems to be talking about circumference, not about the diameter of the log. So the same difference of opinion that we saw in Rav, whether it's referring to the 
diameter or the circumference we're now seeing as a machloket tanaim. Even though this is no proof, at least it seems to indicate in the same way. It's two sides were consumed by the fire. But tocho nachar, and Rashi claims nachar means to be dried out. Its internal was dried out. Will you be able to use it anymore? Once it reached that point where the both the sides have been eaten by fire, consumed by fire, the internal side is now dried out, you no longer can use it for anything. That's the case. It's some sort of, not a proof, but a indication that both sides being on fire is enough to consider something to be lit and then Ruined, mean not be able to use for a carpenter anymore. Vach lefanav aret. So the ach before him was burning, consumed with fire. I want to know, my ach. What are we talking about here? So Ram Amarav achvano. Talking about an achvano, as Rashi says, areva. It's a trough, like a wooden trough that had caught fire. Or a medura pyre from arava, from the willow tree. Shmuel Amar itzim. These are pieces of wood that have caught in fire. Be'achvana. Rashi has a different gersa. Be'achva. Brotherhood. Rashi says it's kol ha'itzim nidlakim gadol. There are many pieces of wood here and the smaller ones light the bigger ones. Meaning that the kindling. That the kindling then lights all the bigger pieces. How d'amalhu man ba'achvana. So we have a case here when someone's asking who wants an achvana. Ashtakach arvata. We found that he was carrying around, and Arava was coming around some sort of trough that he was speaking about. Or Arava, a willow that he was carrying around. Amaravuna, Anim, Ein Tzirichim Rov. When you have small branches, small sticks, they do not need to have the rove catch fire. Agdan, on the other hand, if they're bound into a bundle, then Tzirichim Rov, you do need a rove. The assumption being here that if they're in a bundle, the air flow through them is not sufficient to allow the fire to spread easily. And therefore, we want to make sure that the fire spreads throughout the rope before you leave it. Because if you only light a portion of it, it's not a guarantee that the remainder will catch fire. And then if they are separated, then there's enough air flow there. And if you light one of them, the fire will spread by itself to the others. So there we won't have the requirement of rove. If you leave it going into Shabbat, you won't have to have rove of it. Alit, you just have to have a portion of it that's lit, and then that is fine. On the other hand, if it's bundled, we need the rove, like we do in the Mishnah, that the majority has caught fire before you go into Shabbat in order to leave it that way. Garinim, if you have pits, date pits, which they used as fire fuel, ain't Shrichim rove. Again, you do not need a rove because they burn easily when they're dried out. If you light one of them, the old will catch fire. Natanan be'chutlot, if you put them into baskets, that are made out of dried palm leaves. Women say, what we do with that lulav? If you take the peel off the lulav and how they make baskets out of it, you have the seeds inside of those baskets, then it's rov. They need a majority. Again, the idea being that because there, there's not sufficient airflow because they're packed in there together tightly. If you light one of them, we're not uncertain that it will spread to the others. But if they are free and they're in a pile freed up, then there will be enough airflow and it will allow them to catch fire. So, just the opposite makes more sense. When the kanim are not bound, they're all over the place. Just because you lit one doesn't mean it's going to reach the other one. If you bound them together, they're all in one place. You light one of them, they're all going to catch fire because they're all stuck together. They can't go anywhere. If you have the pits, they just spread out. You put it into one of these palm leaf baskets, 
They're not spread out anymore, and therefore they're guaranteed to catch fire. So he argues on this premise of Ravuna, and he says that just the opposite seems to make more sense to me. You should need the rove when they're not bound, or not together, and you should be sufficient with just one of them being lit, if it's bound together or kept together. Sa'id Marnami, we have a similar statement, Amr Avkana, Kanim Sha'agdan, Kanim that are bound, Tzrichim Rove, they require a rove. Lo'agdan, if they were not bound, Ein Tzrichim Rove, then you do not need a rove. Garinim, and then Garinim Tzrichim Rove, they do require a rove. Natnan Bechutlot, Ein Tzrichim Rove, they do not require a rove. So Rav Gahana is actually like Rav Huna in the first case by Kanim, by the sticks, by the wood. He's like Rav Huna, which means that if they are spread out, then you don't need a rove. If they're bound together, you do need a rove. On the other hand, by the Garinim, by the pits, he's like Rav Chista, which is that when they are spread out, you need a rove. When they're together in the basket, then you don't need a rove because we think they're going to burn. It's the girsa that Rashi has, and Rashi explains that Again, by the Kanim, Rav Kana is with the same position as Rav Huna, and by the pits, he is like Rav Chista. But the Gro says that the Girsat Arosh is this way, but the Rif and the Rambam have a different Girsa. They have the exact opposite of the Girsa of the Rosh. They flip the Girsa over here. Okay, now the Gemara continues. Tani Rav Yosef. Arba Midrot Ein Tzrichim Rov. There are four types of hires that do not need the rove to catch, going into Shabbat, before we permit you to leave it lit, going into Shabbat. And one is Shoshefet, made out of pitch. Shogafrit, of sulfur. Gvina, made out of cheese, which seems to be somewhat difficult. You see here that there's Ode Gimel for the Gro, which says that the Girsa Tarif is Kira, wax. Should make a lot more sense. Veshel Revav, Revav is fats. So those four types of fires... You do not have to have the rove. If they're fueled in this way, you do not have to have the rove lit because they catch fire easily. This is not limited to these four types, but even to kash, straw, we shall give and to stubble. If you look in Rashi, very interesting. If you look in Gavava, that you collect up, that they gather in from the field, and he says that it's a bala stubla. Yeah, stubble. It actually has here in the Old French that it's stubla, which is probably from the word uh, stubble. Right. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, itzim shel bavel, ain't tzrichim rov. The wood that is used for the fires in bavel does not need a rove. The assumption being that their wood caught fire easily. You don't have to worry about it. Once you had a portion of it lit, it would automatically move to the rest of it. And if we don't worry about you stoking the fire, fanning the flames. Yosef, Mahi. What is the wood that he's speaking about? silti. If you are talking about silti, which as Rashi says that you've cut them down into very fine pieces of wood. Hashta tila, a wick. Amar Ula, we already had a statement of Amadik Tsarik Birov, When it comes to wick, the majority of the wick that is extending out of the lamp has to be lit before it's permitted. So there's a wick. A wick's the easiest thing to catch. And yet you still require rove. Silta me by you. You're going to tell me about silty. Some thin, narrow pieces of wood. Just because they catch fire easily, you don't need rove. That doesn't make sense. Ella, Amar of Yosef. It's shucha da'arza. The bark or the branch of the cedar. Rami bar Abamar zazo. It's moss. Once again, if you look in Rashi for zaza, it says musha balas. Again, something along the lines of the... Moss, 
that we're speaking about here. And Rav Yosef says it's the shuch of the arza. It's very, the bark of the cedar tree is very dry, very thin. And also, we're going to see actually in the next parak in a second, it also has this very fine woolly substance that sits between the bark and the wood itself. And that's the equivalent like of a cotton that catches fire very easily. So this type of wood is extremely flammable. And if you light a portion of it, we don't worry about it catching for the rest. And therefore, you will not need a rove in that case. So that's the end of this parak. And with that, we're going to lead into the next parak with fire. So this is familiar to everyone who says it on Friday night. What are you allowed to light with? What are you not allowed to light with? And this is speaking about the Nerota Shabbat, speaking about the candles for Shabbat. What are you allowed to use? What are you not allowed to use? We're going to see later in the mission. is not going to discuss this, but the Gemara will discuss it, and it'll come up, and we'll mention it there. What's the problem? What exactly are we worried about on Shabbat? Are we worried about the fact that you're going to engage with the candle because it's not burning properly? Or are we afraid that somehow it's going to detract from the Onik Shabbat because it won't light properly and you won't be able to stay there? Or are we afraid it's going to extinguish and leave you in the dark? But what is exactly the fear here? That we'll discuss as we come upon it in the Gemara. But right now, the mission is going to give us a list of items that you're allowed to use and a list of items that you're not allowed to use. So, in Madikin, you may not use... And I'm not going to translate any of these because the Gemara is going to have the same question that we have is, what are these items? As Tosafot points out, that the Gemara is not familiar with these items. These are Mishnaic terms. They were Eretz Yisrael, fuels, wicks, and the people in Bavel and Chutzars were not so familiar with them. So then the Gemara is going to ask about all these items. What's this? What's this? What's this? Some of them they know. And it's clear from that that they were familiar with them. Others they're not familiar with. So, lo 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 so until now, we dealt with things that are used for wicks. So all these items are problematic in terms of wicks. Now, from this point forward, we're talking about fuels. And of those are appropriate as fuels. Somebody says you can use cooked fat. It doesn't matter which one you're talking about. You can't use it. So now the Gemara is going to go through each of these items. What's the leches that's mentioned in the Mishnah? So that's shukhadarza, which is mentioned before. Branch of the cedar tree. But again, Gemara says shukhadarza eats balmahu. What are you talking about? We're talking about wicks here. So you're talking about a branch of cedar or the bark of the cedar tree. That's not something he uses a wick. Ella, what are we talking about? We're talking about Ranita the Itbe. The woolly stuff that is between the bark and the wood of the tree. So that's what we discussed before. One of the reasons that this burns so easily is because it has this woolly substance that sits between the bark and the wood of the tree. And that woolly substance can be used for wicks. And that's what the Mishnah is talking about. You may not use that for a wick. Velobachosen, may not use chosen. Amar Rab Yosef, Nyoret, Shel Pishtan. That's talking about the toe of the flax. That doesn't make sense because the posuk in Yishayahu says, The chosen will become Neoret, which indicates that chosen and Neoret are separate items. So if that's the case, you can't tell me that chosen in the Mishnah is Neoret. So when it says, Kitna the Daik. This flax that is pounded, crushed, lo nafitz. 
but not combed. Therefore, it's not good for wicks because it wasn't properly combed. And when you use it, there would be problematic in terms of a wick for the candles on Shabbat. Next is, Amar Shmuel, Shaltinu Yama. I asked all the sailors what this kalach is. I hadn't heard of this. And they told me, that is kocha, which is a woolly substance that grows on the stones in the Dead Sea. That's what they said it was. Interesting because, in general, you wouldn't assume that sailors were sailing on the Dead Sea. It's not exactly the best place to put boats. They don't last very long when they're in the Dead Sea. So he asked the sailors, and the indication he got was kocha, which is this woolly substance that grows in the Dead Sea. Yitzhak Bazir Amar Gushkira, which is either floss silk or a cotton-like plant. That's the two possibilities of what this Gushkira is. Rashi calls it polio, and he says that they used to comb it out, which would be like this floss silk that we're talking about. Ravin v'abaya v'yatve kamei banan nechemia. Ravin and Abayah were sitting in front of Nehemiah. Achva Deresh Galuta, he was the brother of the Exilarch. Chazia Davalovish Mitaksa, they saw that he was wearing some silk garment. Hamalei Ravin Abayah, Ravin says to Abayah, Hainu Kalach. That's the Kalach that's not of the Mishnah. That's the Kalach of the Mishnah. He's wearing it. Hamalei Anan Shira Paranda Karinanle. We call that the Parandian silk. Sameitve. Is that really true? Hashirayim, v'akalach, v'asirikin, chayvin b'tzitzit. So here you have a list of items. You have the kalach, and then you have the shirayim. Shirayim is a cloak that is made out of the main part of the silk. So here you have silk. And separately you have listed here kalach. And then you have the sirikin, which is made from very, very soft silk. So anyway, what you do see from here, and what's important from this, is that these items are chayav b'tzitzit, but they're separate items. You have shirayim and kalach that are separate. So how could you claim before that this kalach is considered to be metaxel, it's considered to be silk, or whether it's considered to be this shira perando, this type of silk? So the Gemara first answer is tiyufta. It's a good question. It's a problem for this explanation. Bibaydeima. Shira lechud, b'shira paranda lechud. It's the difference between silk and parandian silk. These are different types of silk. That's regular silk, and this is the specific type of silk called parandian silk, and that's how we'll differentiate. You're right. Shira paranda is kalach, but shirayim, regular silk, is something different. It's a different type of silk, and therefore they're separated in the reita from menachot. Again, there are two possibilities of why those items are chayim and tzitzit. There is one, Mandamar, and the Gemara Menachot. It's also in Yavamot, other places. But the only beggar that's Chayav and Tzitzit are Semru Pishtin. Wool and linen begadim are Chayav and Torah and Tzitzit. Everything else is only Chayav and Tzitzit, Midei Rabbanan. So this is not like that opinion. It's like the opinion that all types of materials are Chayav and Tzitzit, Midei Raita. Or the possibility is that these materials are Chayavim, Midei Rabbanan. This is right, it's not going to be a rabbinic level that they're chayavim in tzitzit. Okay, below, b'ptilat ha'idan. What's the b'ptilat ha'idan? That's an achvino, which is willow bast. So the willow bast, as Rashi says, that we're talking about an arava. We're talking about the willow. A tzemer ben klipala eats. Between the bark to the wood, again, there's a substance in there that is this willow bast, and that can be used for wicks. Ravin v'abaye, havin ka'azlu b'pitka, the Tamrurita. They were walking in the valley of Tamrurita. Chazinu lahanu arbato. They saw these, here's a change of ear, 
Because an arba with an aleph is a boat. A ravdo with an ayin is a willow. So you see there's a girsu change here on the side in the source of Shaz that says that it's an ayin here. So they saw this, Chazin al is that they saw this aravot, they saw willows. When they rob in the abayi, hainu idan. That's the idan of the Mishnah. Samalei, hai eats baumo. Says that's wood. Looking at something that's a wood substance, how do you use that for a wick? So cut off, peeled off the bark, and ba'achvilei, I'm Ranita de Beni Beni. And he showed him, the Amaranita, showed him the woolly substance between the bark and the wood. So similar to what we saw before with the cedars, with the arza, same is true here by the willow, that between the bark and the wood, there's a woolly substance that they were able to use for wicks. In either case, they're restricted from being used as wicks on Shabbat. Not the wick of the midbar. Gemara says that's a shavra. Shavra is a tall, woolly weed. Again, that cannot be used. If we're talking about the algae, that grows on top of the water in dark spots in the water. You try to pick that up, it crumbles. That's not good for a wick. It doesn't stay together. Talking about the algae that grows on the bottom of the boat. When it's submerged in the water, there's a algae that grows on it. That is what we're speaking about. Tana. We have a bright uh, that adds on the additional items that are not good for wicks. That is wool and hair are not good for wicks. But Tane Didan, our Mishnah, why does he mention these items? It says, Tzemer Michvetz Kovitz. Tzemer doesn't burn. It just shrinks. When you light it on fire, it just shrinks in front of you. It doesn't really burn. And Seyar, Ichruche Michra. The hair also doesn't burn. It just smolders or it singes. It doesn't really burn. So he didn't think it necessary to mention wool and hair because neither of these items really burn. In either case, the fire does some damage to them or consumes them, but in either case, they're not really burning. And therefore, nobody would even consider to use them as wicks, and he doesn't need to mention them in the Mishnah. Now, Vlobe Zefet. So now again, what I said before is that at this point in the Mishnah, we're switching over to fuels. At this point in time, we were speaking about the wicks. Now we're switching over to fuels that are improper to be used for the candles on Shabbat. Zefet is zifta, pitch. Shava is kiruta, wax. So these are items that it seems that they had a certain amount of familiarity with. As opposed to the remainder of the items in the Mishnah where the Gemara is asking that item, what is it? What is it? What is it? And it's trying to find it out. Over here it seems that the Gemara has no problem. It just says, Zephyr is Zifta, Shabbos, Kiruta. We know what these items are. Tan Adkan Tilot. Until this point, we've spoken about problematic wicks. Yikan Be'elech Psul Shmanim. Talking about problematic fuels in the lamp. Pshita. Well, I mean, what's the question? Pitch. You don't use pitch to make a wick. You don't make wax wicks. Used for fuel. So my says, no, Shabbat Spichle. By wax, we do need it. For wicks, it's also problematic. Mashmalan, that it is okay. We would have thought it was a sore. Mashmalan, that it is okay to use them. So the wax can be used both as a fuel as well as a wick. And the only problem is using it as a fuel, not using it as a wick. Okay, I'm a Rabbi Bavin, Atrana, Sulta de Zifta. Itran is the residue, the leftovers of the pitch. Shava, wax, is Sulta de Dubsha, is the leftover of the honeycombs. So we're talking about honey wax over here. So my nafkamino, the Mekach Omemkar. Teach you, if someone says to you, I want wax, you can provide them beeswax, and they can't complain. That's considered to be wax. 
They ask for a trana and give them the residue, the leftovers of the pitch. That's considered to be fine. So now, if you look in the top Tosfot there on the left side, on Chafal now, if he says, Shitulei Vashas, Shayuma Karim, Shavava Itran. The wax and the Itran that are mentioned in the Mishnah, the Gemara was clearly familiar with. Aval the El, the Kamar Mai, when it asked those questions, Levishulei Yuma Karim B'Shem. They didn't recognize these items. It's clear that the Gemara here is asking totally different questions when it comes to Shava and Itran, because they know what those are. They know what those fuels are, and it's very easy for them to identify them. On the other hand, the other items are not easy to identify. Tosafot on the bottom of Chofam and Bet says, B'nei Narvono stream near Shabbat Shalano. The B'nei Narvana say, our wax candles are problematic. That's what you asked before. Wait a minute, the Mishnah here says that wax is problematic. And they explain this way, I would think for wicks, they're also problematic. If you put a candle of wax inside of a candle or, or a lamp of oil, yeyasur. Mashmalan, kamashmalan, mikamelech, psul shmanim. Kevin sheish shemen kasher, mutar. Since you have oil in there, it's okay. Aval ner shava below shemen asur ladlik. But if you have a wax candle without any oil in it, it would not be permissible. Vilin ira, and Tosfet says, dimasur ladlik below shemen, kenich b'shemen ami asur. You can't light it when there, it's no oil, then you can't light it when there is oil. It makes no difference. Kedamirinla, come on. If you wrap up something that you're allowed to light with something that you're not allowed to light, it doesn't work. Even if you don't put it into oil, it is permissible. So it seems from Tosavot, this Tosavot here is making it clear that wax candles are allowed. This goes back to what we were discussing before, what does it mean to be a tila, to be a wick? So according to the B'nai Narvona, it seems to me that the wax really was a wick. It was as... Shoal mentioned before, it seems to me maybe it's a wick that was wrapped in wax and then dipped into an oil lamp. That, they claim, was allowed because it had the shemen as the fuel. What's not allowed is when it's all wax. And that's why they said that our wax candles are no good. On the other hand, Tosafot says that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you may not use the wax as a fuel, but you may use it as a ptila, you may use it as a wick. And so we use the wax in our candles as a wick. So what's interesting about the properties of wax is that what you light is the wick. You have a wick inside the wax, and then you light that wick. The wax melts as the flame goes. Truthfully, the wax would extinguish the flame. Wax itself would drown the flame, and the flame would not burn. But there's this wild property about wax, which is that if you have a flame that burns above the wax... It heats the wax at the top layer enough that it starts to evaporate. And when that wax evaporates, that fine evaporation of wax actually does fuel the flame. And so wax itself is not the fuel. It's only once the wax is heated that the evaporated wax acts as the fuel for the wick. And therefore over here, even though in our candles we have the wick inside the wax, wax itself is not functioning as a fuel. It's only once it's heated by the wick that it functions as a fuel. And therefore, we're not using them like in their day where they used the wax literally as the fuel for the fire. Ours is only the melted wax, the evaporated part of it that acts as the fuel. And that's why it would be different. We're using it as a ptila. We're using it as the wick. And it drives the wick. That small amount of evaporated wax drives the wick. And that's why we were permitted to use our candles, like Tosafot says. Even though in their day, the problem with the wax candles, because they were being used, the wax itself was the fuel. In our day, if you lit the wax, it, would, it wouldn't light. First of all, and then if it's the... Wax is already melted, it would drown the flame. You can't light it. It won't do anything to the wax itself. So their wax probably had more fatty substance in it, 
and was a more flammable item, and therefore they were able to light the wax itself. All right, we'll stop over here.